Hi, I'm John, Father John Deere, and welcome to my podcast. Today, I'd like to reflect on the extraordinary, heroic, saintly, nonviolent life of Dorothy Day, founder of The Catholic Worker. A few years ago, when Pope Francis addressed Congress, he said she was one of the greatest of all Americans, right up there with Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King, which is just wonderful. So I'd like to review her life and then reflect with you on some basic lessons from her, especially about nonviolence. I presume we all know a lot about Dorothy, and many of you may know much more than me, but I hope this will be helpful. And my basic thought is always, you can never reflect enough on our great saints and peacemakers. There's always more to learn. My cousin, who was my godfather, was a Catholic worker and a close friend of Dorothy's. So he sent me the Catholic Worker newspaper since I was born. So I grew up reading the Catholic Worker, which explains a lot about me, and knowing about Dorothy Day. And I always presumed I would meet her one day, but I didn't. And I think about it, I could have. I remember well the day she died on November 29, 1980, and the Washington Post had this big tribute, and they said this amazing thing. If the world survives, humanity, centuries from now, will look back on this era as the age of St. Dorothy Day, just as we look back on the feudal era as the age of St. Francis. Incredible. I entered the Jesuits shortly after that and moved to New York City, and the first thing I did, like the first thing I did, was went down to Mary House and St. Joseph House of the Catholic Worker, helped out. I stayed there for a few weeks, befriended many Catholic workers, heard many Dorothy Day stories, and over the years gave many, many talks at the Catholic Worker. And all of that is to say Dorothy Day is very important to me, along with Gandhi and Dr. King and the Berrigans. I probably visited some 20 Catholic Worker houses across the country, and I really urge you to go and visit one if you haven't, because the experience is so powerful. In 1985, I led a walking pilgrimage from the New York Catholic Worker House, St. Joseph House, across the, on the Staten Island Ferry to Staten Island. We walked all the way across the island to her grave and had a prayer service. And in the late 1990s, when I was the executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and living in Manhattan with Daniel Berrigan, many Sunday afternoons I would drive out to Staten Island by myself and go back to the cemetery and spend an hour quietly sitting on her grave, praying and asking for her help. I say that to share with you how important she is to me. So just the facts of her life. Dorothy Day was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 8th, 1897. November 8th, 1897. Hmm. And moved to Oakland, California right after that. She and her family barely survived the horrific 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And then her family packed up and moved to Chicago, to the south side, where she grew up and became a great reader and writer, like her father, who was a longtime journalist. Now, it was Upton Sinclair's incredible novel, The Jungle, all about poverty and horrific working conditions, I hope you've all read it, which had a huge impact on her as a teenager. And she started to take long walks in Chicago's poorest neighborhoods. And that was the beginning of her concern and love for the poor. Then in 1914, she went to the University of Illinois at Urbana, 
and then dropped out two years later and moved to New York and immediately got a job as a reporter for The Call, which was the daily socialist newspaper. And I think like a year later, she moved over to The Masses. Well, The Call shut down. The Masses was a magazine opposed to American involvement in World War I, which was then called The Great War. And, and she was involved in the suffragist movement. And if you remember, in 1917, I think it was, she joined a protest in front of the White House, a group of women calling for the right of women to vote. And she and 40 other women were arrested. They were taken out to the Aquaton prison, put in terrible prison conditions, and tortured. And then they went on a hunger strike and um, were eventually released. But there was huge publicity about the way the women were treated, which deeply embarrassed the Wilson government. And so he granted women the right to vote. I think her civil disobedience was the turning point. And no one really talks about that. Of course, she never voted for the rest of her life because, you know. So once during an anti-war meeting, around the same time, imagine, this is 1917, the police showed up barged in, beat everybody up, and broke up the meeting. I don't know that people know that a police officer beat Dorothy up with his club and broke many of her ribs. And the next few years, she tried writing books. She was married and divorced. She finally then settled down in this beautiful, tiny little beach cottage on Staten Island with her common-law husband, Foster Batterham, who was this really strong socialist anarchist. In the early 1980s, I remember some of us, our friends with the workers, used to go and stay in Dorothy's cottage on Staten Island and hold little retreats for ourselves. It was just three or four of us. Of course, they bulldozed the house later. In 1926, Dorothy gave birth to her beloved daughter, Tamar, and it totally changed her life. She was overwhelmed with joy over this. As she says in her famous autobiography, The Long Loneliness, this was the, the transforming great event of her life. She used to walk on the beach and just overwhelmed with joy and consolation. What the heck is this? And she knew it was the presence of God. And she started giving thanks. And she said, well, I'm not going to let my baby go through what I did. So she went down the street to the local Catholic church and had the baby baptized. And then a few months later, she said, well, I better grow up and do the same too. And so she was baptized and her anarchist husband was utterly appalled and walked out on her and the baby, which is so sad and tragic. I, I always claim Daniel Berrigan, who's my best friend, was one of her best friends. And I remember many times we talked about everything and he he would so lament what happened. Um, I'm getting off track here, but what a lot of people don't know, unless you read the books, is that she and Foster got back together in the 1970s and used to call each other every day and hold hands in the park. And it just it made Dan feel so happy. And it makes me happy, too, for her. She loved Tamar. And yet she was kind of lost the next five years after Foster left her. She moved to Hollywood, where she got paid writing movie scripts, which is something to ponder. Dorothy Day working for MGM. Then she moved to Mexico, where she would have stayed for the rest of her life. There she interviewed Trotsky. She lived for a while with Frida Kahlo, 
the great artist. And Tamar got really sick and they had to go back to New York, otherwise she would have stayed. And one day, it's a long story, but cutting to the chase, in December 1932, Peter Morin showed up at her doorsteps. And he was this short Frenchman who lived and looked like a homeless person, but was this towering intellectual, totally radical Catholic, total saint, and a philosopher of personalism, the belief that everything has to be personal, especially for activists. And he said, you need to start a newspaper. And while you're at it, houses of hospitality and agronomic universities, which we would call farming communes. Why? To form a social order based on gospel values, this is such a great line, where it's easier for people to be good. That's a beautiful Peter Morin teaching. We have to create a society where it's easier for people to be good. Right now, it's very hard for people to be good. And Peter became Dorothy's mentor and teacher, and together they founded The Catholic Worker. So she starts the newspaper, calls it The Catholic Worker, and the first issue is published May 1st, 1933, okay? It's the height of the Depression, and it costs a penny a paper. So she's going to live totally on donations. And there had never been anything like it. No, it's very hard for us to grasp this. A radical newspaper about workers' rights, justice, peace, but by Catholics? Catholics are hated, and they're on the side of the fascists. By December, I'm not good at math, but I think that seven months later, they were distributing over 100,000 copies for each issue, which is, you know, before, no one had telephones, forget fax or computer, there's no publicity. It just was, it was a thing. At the same time, Dorothy starts taking in homeless people into her apartment. Then she starts going around renting more apartments as people give her a few bucks to house the homeless. And within three years, she had 33 Catholic worker houses of hospitality going. It's just an incredible achievement. So the social worker, this is like the first year, comes by and says, now, Miss Day, <clears throat> how long do you permit your clients to stay? And she said, oh, we let them stay forever. They live with us, they die with us, this is a direct quote, and we give them a Christian burial. Then we pray for them every day after they are dead, as long as we are alive. Once they are taken in, they become members of the family. No, I'm wrong. They were always members of our family because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is quintessential Dorothy Day. But, dear friends, what makes Dorothy Day so unusual is that she was not just a social worker, not just doing charitable work, which is very important. Please understand me. That's very important. She went beyond that then and said, I, I want justice. In other words, there shouldn't be all these people who are poor. It's not because people can't build the, pick themselves up by their bootstraps. It's the system that makes four, five billion people, homeless, hungry, unemployed around the planet today. So she was wanted an end to poverty and the systemic oppression and injustice that goes with it. And the minute you start working on that, you go, well, where's the money? And you start going to war. And so that meant she started speaking out against war and nuclear weapons. Now this, please hear my point. Now this, again, is my take on the great saint. This is all way before Martin Luther King or Thomas Merton, or the Barricans. 
Bergens on August 6, 1945, formed a parade to celebrate the bomb going off. I mean, that's the, it's very, very hard to understand what Dorothy Day did. She was thoroughly committed to gospel nonviolence. And you're going, well, John, yeah, that's nice. What's the problem? That's fine. No, this is totally unheard of by a Catholic or a Christian in the United States up till the 1930s. Uh, I've researched this. Now, there were some people in the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Again, I'm getting off the text here, and you know I was the executive director there. I found out that Dorothy was one of her many jobs in 1928. She was on the staff of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was all pacifism. So I, I have a theory that's where she learned all this. That needs further investigation. Um, but no one had done this in the Catholic Church. And by that I mean, I submit there was not one priest against war in US history or later against nuclear weapons until the 1960s. Daniel Berrigan said there might have been one. His name was John Ford, who's a moral theologian in the early 50s. No one was saying the things that Dorothy Day did. Now, to give you more perspective, for example, the US Catholic Con Conference of Bishops, you all know who they are, they're going full steam today. They are the Bishops Conference out of Washington, DC and Baltimore. What happened? They were founded solely for the purpose of war. Look it up if you don't believe me. Our purpose as bishops is to get Catholics to support the troops in World War I and to kill the enemy. Solely, 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 they're very quite proud of that. Totally anti-gospel. And it makes sense. Catholics were, you know, fringe and they want to be seen as good Americans. But I submit Nothing has changed with the purpose of the U.S. Catholic Bishops' Conference, but I digress, and I better not. Um, it's totally anti-gospel, and here comes this woman. Who does she think she is? And she says, no. And they, the bishops and Catholics, are going, she's a woman. She's a convert. She's a communist. She's not a real Catholic. It's really almost impossible to appreciate the new ground that Dorothy Day broke, to understand how hated she was, and therefore how truly great she was. I have friends who say, I invite you to ponder this with me. First there's St. Francis, and next there's St. Dorothy Day, as the two greatest saints in history. Utterly amazing. Now, again, to keep stressing this point, but forgive me, Dorothy Day consistently condemned every war throughout her entire life. Nobody had done that before. As World War II began, she announced that the paper would maintain its pacifist stand. Huh? And I want to read from you a long quote from an open letter she wrote to all the Catholic worker houses the week after Pearl Harbor. Here it goes. Listen to this. This is quintessential Dorothy Day. Try to imagine how many people hated her for this. Quote, we will print the words of Christ who is always with us. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. We are at war, a declared war with Japan, Germany, and Italy, but we still repeat Christ's word each day. 
holding them close in our hearts, and each month printing them in the paper. In times past, Europe has been a battlefield, but don't forget St. Francis, who spoke of peace. So we're going to go on and quote our Pope, our saints, and our priests. We'll keep on printing articles which remind us that we are all called to be saints, that we are other Christs, that we are all the priesthood of the laity. We are all still pacifists. And this is the sentence that it kills me. I remember the first time I read it. I'm still quoting her now. Here it goes. Our manifesto is the Sermon on the Mount. I never heard anybody say that before or since. Which means that we try to be peacemakers. We will not participate in armed warfare. We will not make whip weapons. We will try daily, hourly, to pray for an end to the war. Let us add that unless we combine this prayer with almsgiving, and giving to the least of God's children, and fasting in order to help feed the hungry, and penance in recognition for our share in this social guilt, our prayer may become empty words, unquote. So no one had ever heard of an American trying to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, in my opinion. Or certainly no Catholic had ever done that before. So she was condemned right and left as naive or dangerous and many, many Catholic workers up and left just over the statement, and they immediately closed 30 houses. Can you imagine what that poor woman went through? She's standing up for the gospel in the middle of World War II. No, we can't imagine it. By the 1950s now, the U.S. is, <laughs> it's hard to think about it, has moved into total insanity after vaporizing people at Hiroshima. And so they start to hold compulsory civil defense drills, as you all know, where they're trying to prepare people for nuclear war. So just before the Russians drop the atomic bomb and vaporize us, you kids hide under the desk and the rest of you go down to the basement. There's no radiation. Dorothy started walking with her friends into Washington Square, Greenwich Village, and refused to go underground. I mean, they, were, they have to go underground. It's against the law to stay upstairs. You have to go indoors. So they were arrested and jailed for 30 days. And she called this civil disobedience an act of penance for America's use of nuclear weapons. And she was put in the Women's Detention Center. I remember Dan Berrigan and I used to walk by it. It's where we lived late in our lives. It's no longer there, but you can read her journals. She was, it was terrible, terrible torture. By 1960, so this was happening every year and Dorothy would do this every year. Over 500 people joined her, and so the police stopped arresting people except for the leaders. In 1961, the next year, 2,000 people filled Washington Square, and the air raid drills were canceled. Nonviolence works. And Thomas Merton, thank God, Merton, you came through, wrote Dorothy these spectacular letters when everybody's hating her and go, you're the only reason I'm a Catholic, you're the real great follower of Jesus. You're going to be one of the greatest saints of all time. And, he, and this is a quote. That was perfect Gandhian satyagraha. You show us how nonviolence works. Isn't that great that Merton supported the great woman? J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, on the other hand, immediately added her name to the index of radicals to be detained in prison in the event of a national emergency. That is on my bucket list. 
I think I'm there already, everybody, but I'm hoping that I'm on that list of Christians. So, you know, we're now in the 60s, in 1963, Pope John Dorothy goes to Rome during the Second Vatican Council as one of, quote, a group they call themselves Mothers for Peace. There were 50 women, and they just wanted to thank Pope John for the incredible encyclical Pachamon Terrace. Nothing had ever appeared like that in 2,000 years. It's the first time the church stood on the side of peace. But as you remember the story, he immediately got sick with cancer and he died two months after it was released. And so they, the Pope couldn't meet them privately, which was the plan. But in his last or second to last public audience, he called down to them. She was in the crowd and blessed the pilgrims and asked them to keep at it. Now the Vatican Council starts and it's going on. And you know, there's over 2,000 bishops from around the world living in Rome for several years. It was so historic, such a breakthrough. She went back, only this time with a group of women. They had a quiet fast for 30 days, or maybe it was less than that, but it was, a, it, was, it was very hard for her. And the prayer was that the council would issue a clear statement against war. So she published this really great special edition of the Catholic Worker newspaper, calling for a total condemnation of war and nuclear weapons. It was incredible. I've seen it. And Jim Douglas, my friend, and others then took, you know, thousands of these copies and walked around the Vatican and tried to give one to every bishop in, in Rome, lobbying them, in effect. And later in December, they were thrilled when the document came out, The Church in the Modern World. Look it up. And it totally condemns war and nuclear weapons, quote, as a crime against God and humanity. Now, I don't know if you know about Vatican documents like Vatican I. Everything is condemnation. Anathema sit. I mean, you could have a thousand condemnations. Vatican II, in all that 2,000-page document, there's not one condemnation for the first time in 2,000 years, except for war and weapons of destruction. Dorothy's fast and prayer. It's fantastic. Nonviolence works. And then the Vietnam War got worse, and Dorothy was actively condemning it. Many of the Catholic workers were protesting it, and some burned their draft files and went to jail, and Dorothy supported conscientious objectors and spoke out at protests and advocated nonviolent action. Then, if, if you're with me on the chronology, October 1968, the trial of the Catonsville Nine, she spoke at the rally the night before in the big church in Baltimore to support her friends, Fathers Daniel and Philip Berrigan. And she, she took the stage in the packed church hall, it was the Jesuit church in Baltimore, and she got up to the microphone and she shouted into it, the only thing left to do is fill the jails, fill the jails. She had helped to start Pox in the 1960s with our friend Eileen Egan. And that later became Pax Christi. And she was at the first founding meeting of that. And in 1973, she's 75 years old now. She goes to California to support Cesar Chavez, of course, and the United Farm Workers. And they have this campaign. And they arrested her. The police, there's a very famous picture of her surrounded by men with weapons. And she was jailed for two weeks, and she called it a retreat. 
Then comes August 6, 1976, the famous Eucharistic Congress in Philadelphia. I don't know how many of you remember it. I remember it. Um, thousands of people, all the bishops, the Vatican officials go to Philadelphia for one of these worldwide semi-annual or whatever Eucharistic Congresses. The speakers were Mother Teresa, Dom Helder Camerell, Peter, Pedro Arupe, head of the Jesuits, and Dorothy Day. And she stood up to the crowd on August 6th, the Feast of the Transfiguration, and said, today is also the anniversary of the U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima. This morning, you bishops had a mass for the military, which I call a mass for war, which I name as pure blasphemy. And she did too. And she totally condemned the bishops for having a mass for war on Hiroshima Day. And by the way, they still do this all the time. And so do the Jesuits. Write me if you don't believe me or look it up. That night when she returned to Mary House in New York, she had a heart attack. And she kind of never recovered. I don't know if everybody knows that. I mean, imagine how brave to stand up and say that to those thousands of people. Who likes to speak? But I've had experiences like that. And over the next few years, she became incredibly frail and reclusive. And then she died quietly in her room at Mary House on November 29, 1980, with Tamar by her side. Say the Catholic Worker has well over 150 houses of hospitality for the homeless, and they publish many, many newspapers and manage several farming com communes. And I expect she will be beatified in New York City maybe even a year or two. And I'm all for her canonization because we, not her, we need more examples about how to follow the non-binary Jesus and ins being inspired to serve the poor and to work for peace. Actually, though, the canonization doesn't work for me. I think Dorothy Day should be named a doctor of the church. She's that great. She's equal to Catherine of Siena. So perhaps now I could offer a few lessons that I'm trying to learn from Dorothy Day. Um, first, and you all know this, I'm just mulling and reflecting with you. Dorothy calls us to see Christ in the poor, to serve Christ in the poor, and therefore to live Matthew 25, to do the works of mercy as best we can. That means we try to serve and befriend and house the homeless, feed the hungry, care for the sick, visit the imprisoned, and liberate the disenfranchised. Um, here's a great quote, one of the great quotes from her book, Loaves and Fishes. I've always loved this and been challenged by it. Poverty is my vocation, to live as simply and as poorly as I can, and never to cease talking and writing of poverty and destitution. And then listen to this next sentence. I condemn poverty and I advocate it. Wow. Anything you do not need belongs to the poor. Once we begin not to worry about what kind of house we're living in, what kind of clothes we're wearing. Once we give up the stupid recreation of the world, we have time, time which is priceless to remember that we are all our brothers and sisters keepers, that we must not only care for their needs as far as we are immediately able to, but we are called to build a better world. Okay, second, building on this, Dorothy invites us to become one with the poor through voluntary poverty. This is what she did. I distinctly remember 40 years ago asking all her old friends, whom are all dead now, about her. They told me many stories, and they would say she literally would have no money. 
If she had $10 by the end of the day, she gave it to a homeless person. That She went to bed. She personally had no money. And how hard it is to really understand that she lived with homeless women, many of them very seriously mentally ill, right up until her death at age 82. Another story. Once uh, Random House, which was my publisher years ago, asked me to write a biography of Dorothy Day. So I went to Marquette and I studied, spent a lot of time in her archives and studied her papers and letters. And I found this letter from her lifelong friend, Nina, written a year before she died. So Dorothy would have been about 81. And she wrote something like this. Everyone says how wonderful I am, but this is no joke. I live with very sick, homeless women. I remember the moment I read that, that line, this is no joke. It's all nice to think I'm such a nice person, but uh, it's her whole life, she never stopped. And then there's this story from Robert Coles, the great man. He tells an incredible story of his first visit with Dorothy Day in 1952. I wasn't going to say this part, but if you get her, his book called, I think it's called Dorothy Day, A Pilgrimage, the story is the introduction. He's a kid. He's heard of her. There's no way I'm going to go down to her. He's standing on the corner like Fifth Avenue waiting for the traffic light to change, you know, so he can cross the street. And the person next to him has a massive heart attack, falls into his arms, and died. And he laid him on the man, and the man was dead. So Robert Coles took the bus to Christie Street, I think it was, to go meet Dorothy Day from that moment, Mott, Mott Street. He walks into the Catholic worker house, just like St. Joseph House today, and it's a big room, and it's all these tables, and there's this horrible, dirty kitchen in the back, and there's nobody there except for two old, or two women, two women, I should say, sitting at the tables. One of them is Dorothy Day, and the other woman has a large purple birthmark covering most of her face, and she's totally drunk, and she's talking nonstop, nonsensically. This is Robert Coles. This is not my story. The whole time, Dorothy's sitting right there, looking her in the eye, listening to, to the drunken woman intensely. And now I'm going to read to you what the great man wrote. Quote, When would it end? The alcoholic ranting, the silent nodding, occasionally interrupted by a brief question, which only served maddeningly to wind up the already over-talkative one rather than wind her down. Finally, silence fell upon the room, and Dorothy Day asked the woman if she would mind an interruption. And Dorothy got up and came over to me and asked, Are you waiting to talk with one of us? Dear friends, I'm going to repeat that. Are you waiting to talk with one of us? The Zen mindfulness, the total commitment, seeing Jesus in the poor woman. And this is Coles continuing. One of us? With those three words, she cut through layers of self-importance, a lifetime of bourgeois privilege, and scraped the hard bone of pride. With those three words so quietly and politely spoken, she indirectly told me what the Catholic worker movement is all about and what she herself was like. 
I just find that so touching. It's one of the most, the great stories of the lives of the saints. Here she is again. All our talk about peace and the weapons of the Spirit are meaningless. Get ready. Unless we try in every way to embrace voluntary poverty and not work in any position, any job that contributes to war. Not to take any job which pay, whose pay comes from the fear of war or from nuclear weapons. Just really understand the connection between wealth and war and poverty and war and the way of Jesus and St. Francis and now Dorothy Day. If you want to be a peacemaker, you're on the journey of downward mobility. Okay, third. I'm just walking through these points because they challenge me too. Dorothy lived a disciplined daily practice of prayer and meditation and invites us to do the same. You could say, John, that's nice. Well, she's a saint. No, she's very, very busier. busy. I submit she's busier than any one of us because she's living with 50 homeless, mentally ill women, not to mention the young kids who are working in the Catholic worker. Let's just put it this way, have a lot of issues. Dorothy spent two hours every morning in prayer, meditation, scripture reading, reading the lives of the saints, and she did the office, and then she went to daily mass. I think given the horrors of the world right now that we're all going through, this, could be, uh, this might be something we might all consider to do too. This, she would say, should be the ordinary practice of every Catholic. She said the rosary in the evening. I think they held evening prayer at 5.30 every day. She made an annual retreat. And she, very interestingly, kept a long, long prayer list of people to pray for, beginning with the poor and the homeless. The people found dead on the train tracks or the drug addict who had nobody to pray for them. She'd see a name in the newspaper. And then she prayed for them for the rest of her life. And pretty much everyone who died. Fourth. Just to stress it, Dorothy was totally committed to gospel nonviolence, and that means she spoke out against war and weapons her entire life, and she invites us to do the same. I think she's begging from heaven, crying. She would cry a lot alone in a room, according to her diaries about this, begging us to just get with the program and commit our lives to gospel nonviolence, especially now when things are dare I say, far worse than in Dorothy's time, in this age of permanent warfare. She opposed every war, and in the early days, she may have been one of the only few people in the whole country against war, except for the brave communists and this small, very tiny peace movement. She advocated the works of mercy. Okay, we all got that. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, housing the homeless, visiting the sick, and the imprisoned. Matthew 25. Dorothy, I got it. No, she says, War makes people hungry, naked, homeless, sick, and imprisoned. Have you ever thought about it like that? And then she said, and by the way, it kills them. It bombs them. It vaporizes them. You cannot be a Christian or a Catholic and support war. Here's a quote from 1956. I know that war is evil, and there is no such thing as an armed peace. So I oppose war and all that makes for war, even if it goes against duly constituted authority. So she denounced World War I, World War II, the Korean War, oh, the Spanish War, every other war, the Vietnam War, and the U.S. wars in Central America. And her stand was incredibly unpopular and dangerous. She was hated not only by the mainstream media, but the institutional church. And I would submit nearly all Catholics. I remember my mother in the early 60s saying very negative things about her. And she actually had a connection to Dorothy. 
But Dorothy kept saying, because that was normal. That was normal. Dorothy kept saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, but Jesus says, love your enemies. And that means you can't kill our nation's enemies. We're called to be peacemakers. Now, this was a brand new stand for a Catholic to take. I submit it was new for everybody. I know that the Mennonites uh, were way ahead of the curve, too, but they were very small in number two. Anyway, she's saying this should be normative. This should be the normal position of every Catholic, every Christian. It wasn't then, and it isn't today. But, dear friends, we all owe this great woman such a great debt for being the first to take such a bold public stand for peace. In 1962, it's hard to remember, at the height of the Cold War, the month before, nobody knew this, the October Missile Crisis, Dorothy went to Cuba. I mean, she could be shot for that. Here's her diary entry the day before she left. This is the week before the Cuban Missile Crisis. She's drinking her coffee. It's so good to sit here in the early morning and think and pray about my visit to Cuba. To me, the issue is always and only is nonviolence, as well as the needs of suffering humanity. And I like that. And later in 1969, I found this sentence, which I put in my book. It's the frontispiece of the nonviolent life. This is, here it is, here it comes. To me, nonviolence is the all-important problem or virtue to be nourished, studied, and cultivated. Amen, Dorothy. Okay, I got more quotes for you because I, I love them. 1969, she also wrote, We want a society where men and women will have work as well as bread, where they can choose their vocations, where every child will have a chance to develop their talents and capacities. Students need to read and study much to follow their calling in this great revolution. They need to study the works of Gandhi and Dr. King. We need to make more of a heaven here and have a long-range view of a new social order where justice dwells, which is neither capitalist nor communist nor totalitarian. And we can only accomplish it by nonviolence and not by warfare. Isn't that just beautiful? 1940, just before World War II, which had already begun, she writes, nonviolent resistance is the only sane solution. I love that. We have to continue to make our voice heard until we are finally silenced. And even then, whether they put us in jail or a concentration camp, we have to continue to try to express ourselves. If there are not some who still hold this ideal, who still speak in terms of the councils of perfection, that's the ancient Catholic Church term about the wisdom of the ages, the ideal will be lost. I do not see why we must accept the inevitability of war. It was only in the last century that slavery was done away with here in this country, and I suppose that everybody thought it was something to be accepted. It could never be done away with. If we are working towards peace, we must look with hope that in a future generation to come, they will do away with war. So with great suffering and great prayer and patience and endurance, we are trying to uphold these ideals. Just lovely. Here's another great quote. Uh, this may be my favorite. When I lie in jail thinking about peace and war, what a way to begin our sentence. It's my experience too. When I lie in jail thinking of war and peace and the problems of human freedom and the apathy of the great masses of people who believe that nothing can be done. I am all the more confirmed in my faith in the little way of St. Therese of Lisieux. We do the minute things that come to hand. We pray our prayers. We beg for an increase of faith. 
and God will do the rest. It's just lovely. But you have to be in jail to think like that. <laughs> Is she saying that? Fifth, so I'm up in the ante here. Dorothy offers a radical prophetic witness to the gospel, to Jesus, which includes taking a stand for justice and peace, speaking out and engaging in nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience, and she invites us to do the same, not to be afraid. Remember her famous quote, which she repeated so often, all our problems stem from our acceptance of this filthy, rotten system. So important. She never had any money. She never paid any taxes. She never voted. She non-cooperated with the system as nonviolently as possible. Then she resisted the system, so she was totally monitored by the FBI and the government, as well as the bishops. And she had, I found this quote 20 years ago, and I put it in several of my books, but I don't know where I found it. But to me, it's one of the great quotes. This is Dorothy Day. We measure our discipleship to Jesus by how much trouble we are in with the government for our stand for peace and justice. Like Jesus, she criticized all the structures and powers of justice and war and empire. And I think that's what we need to do, especially as we are turning deeper into fascism. We need to live a radical prophetic witness of the gospel like Dorothy Day. Each of us has to discern how to do that. I love, I hope you don't mind me continuing a few more points, but one of my favorite biblical analysis that she gave is this, the famous story where the horrible religious authorities confront Jesus about taxes. Remember, and they say to him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're, they're trying to trap him, to arrest him and kill him. And what does Jesus say? Show me a coin. Whose face is on it? Now, right there, it's one of the most brilliant things Jesus ever did. You're not supposed to carry a coin if you're a devout Jew because coins are idolatrous. It has Caesar's face on it, and Caesar says he's God. So the religious authorities put out all these coins in their pockets. Jesus has no money. And then he says that famous poetic line, this is Jesus, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And for 2,000 years, all Catholics and Christians go, oh, thank God we get to pay our taxes. See, Jesus told us to pay taxes. It's okay to support Caesar in America and the government. It was literally, friends, I've studied this, only until Dorothy Day came along who explained the truth. <laughs> and it's so obvious now, her famous one-liner. I hope you're sitting down. Here it comes. Once you give to God what is God's, there's nothing left for Caesar. Wow. Oh, boy. Well, I can go on and on. I'm looking at pages of votes. Here's just one more on this point about the radical prophetic witness. If we can only learn that the important thing is love and that we will be judged by love, so the goal is to keep on loving and showing that love and expressing that love over and over, whether we feel it or not, to everyone, to husbands and children and mothers-in-law and the poor, to be oblivious of insult or hurt or injury. It's a hard, hard doctrine. But God can change things in a twinkling of an eye. So we just have to keep on praying and read the gospel and get to communion and not judge and not do anything but love, love, love. Sixth, in terms of this as a witness, just to point out for the record, 
which we often forget about Dorothy Day, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, she was a great writer. She edited her, her paper from 1932 to 1980. That's no joke, joke. She published 10 great books. She wrote countless letters, thousands. Her archives at Marquette are overwhelming. She also traveled the country constantly, sometimes six months of the year, and gave probably, well, she gave thousands of talks. But her writings live on, and they will continue to influence many, many people. So I don't know what the lesson is, except to say that she shows us that the pen is mightier than the sword, and that in our Christian witness, from St. Paul to Dorothy Day, go and speak out and go and write. Seventh, another key lesson from Dorothy is the importance of community. She lived in a community all her life, like St. Francis, St. Clair and Gandhi. And she thought Christians everywhere should live in small communities or at least belong to them, and ideally within your parish. Now, I, I know you won't mind, but I have to read the last page of her famous autobiography, The Long Loneliness, which to me is one of the most beautiful poetic Christian statements in history and should be added to the New Testament. Here she is. We were just sitting there talking when Peter Morin walked in. We were just sitting there talking when lines of people began to form saying, we need bread. We could not say, go thou be filled. If there were six small loaves and a few fishes, we divided them, but there was always bread. We were just sitting there talking and people moved in on us. Let those who can take it, take it. Some moved out and that made more room for others and the walls expanded. We were just sitting there talking and someone said, let's all go living on a farm. It was as casual as all that, I often think. It just came about. It just happened. The most significant thing about the Catholic worker is poverty, some say. The most significant thing is community, others say. We are not alone anymore. But really the final word is love. At times it has been, in the words of Father Sozoma from Dostoevsky, a harsh and dreadful thing, and our very faith in love has been tried through fire. You cannot love God unless you love each other, and to love we must know each other, and we know him in the breaking of the bread, and we know each other in the breaking of the bread, and we are not alone anymore. Heaven is a banquet, and life is a banquet too, even with a bit of a crust, which comes with companionship. Eighth, Let's reflect on Dorothy for a moment as a woman in a very sexist, patriarchal world. Now, if you've read the fine print, you know she said, oh, I'm not a feminist. But of course she was a feminist. Here's this woman publishing a newspaper in 1932, founding a whole movement, taking on the all-man bishops, the male-dominated church, and I might add, the male-dominated peace movement and communist party, and as a single mother, she prayed and followed her conscience. She did what she needed to do, and she didn't wait for permission, except from, from God. Just a little point that out. She was committed to the church, and to the great scandal of all of us, she stayed with the church. She said, because that's where the poor are. But she was always a universal figure. Thank you, Dorothy, a global peacemaker, a great, great saint, way beyond most men way beyond nearly every priest and bishop. I'm not putting them down, I'm just saying that's how great she is.
Here's a letter from her to my great friend Gordon Zahn, 1968. <laughs> I never expected much from the bishops. In all of history, which by the way she studied morning, noon, and night, popes and bishops and abbots seem to have been blind and power-loving and greedy, so I never expected leadership from them. Ah, but it's the saints, the saints who keep appearing all through history, who keep the thing going. What I do expect is the bread of life, and down through the ages there has been that continuity. That's a lovely teaching. You know, keep your eyes on the saints, don't get caught up with the administration. So she's become this living icon, which is just what we need today in the male-dominated church. A holy Christian woman who shows us how to be a Christian, how to be a peacemaker, and Daniel Berglund would say how to be a human being. Lastly, 10th in conclusion, Dorothy Day taught. Uh, she once had this as a headline of the newspaper. We are all called to become saints. And then she said, becoming a saint is the revolution. Isn't that fantastic teaching? I think, friends, this is my favorite Dorothy Day quote. I said this in every talk I gave for about 10 years once. Here she goes. As you come to know the seriousness of the situation, the wars the racism, the poverty, and the nuclear weapons, we come to realize that things will not be changed simply by words or demonstrations. Rather, it's a question of living one's life in a drastically different way. Greta Thunberg basically has been saying that for the last few years. Here's another quote I like. What are we trying to do? We are trying to get to heaven, all of us. We are trying to leave a good life in bad times. We are to trying to talk about and write about and live the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the social principles of the church. And it is the most astounding, the things that happen to you when you start trying to live this way. Um, uh, how about this one? The greatest challenge, therefore, of today is how to bring about a revolution of the heart, a revolution which has to start within each and every one of us, and when we begin to take the lowest pace, place, the lowest place, um, at the feet of others, to love our brothers and sisters with that burning love, that passion which led to the cross, only then can you say, now I have begun. All my prayer, my suffering, my reading, my study would lead me to this conclusion that love is a great and holy force and must be used as a spiritual weapon. Love against hate, suffering against violence, what is 2,000 years in the history of the world? We have scarcely begun to love. We have scarcely begun to know Christ and to see him in others around us. Thank you so much, Dorothy Day, and thank you all for listening. I hope you found this helpful. Uh, take care. God bless you, and peace be with you.